If you could ask God for anything, what would it be? Perhaps I should say, when you ask God for anything, what is it? What is that thing that you desire more than anything else? Maybe the thing you're most afraid to tell other people, but your heart sings for it and cries out to God for it. For some of you, it's very simple. Financial security. Money. Freedom from worrying about the future. Perhaps others, some sort of self-improvement, victory over an area of your life that has been a struggle for you. Discipline. Wisdom. Maybe improved skill in some area. Others may long for career success. Getting out of uh, the job that they're in. Fulfilling some life goals. Well-behaved children. Think about some of those secret requests. Sort of reminds me of a scene in the movie Three Amigos where they're all, the three heroes in the movie are dreaming about what they'll They'll do with the million-dollar reward they get. And so I'm like, oh, I'm going to have this great big house or a, a great big car. And then the, the third guy is like, I want to give my money to an orphanage. And the other is like, oh, yeah, yeah, we meant that first. We would do that, of course. Perhaps your goal is something noble, <laughs> something more noble than those self-fulfilling things. Maybe you want world peace. Maybe you long for the end of suffering. Maybe that's what your heart cries out for an end of poverty. Well, I want to argue this morning that all of those requests, the selfish ones, the unselfish ones, all of them are too weak. They're too small. We're constantly asking God for too little. See, the thing that we really long for, the thing that will fulfill our hearts that will solve the problems that we face day to day. They need more. They need more than the things that we keep asking for because it's not enough. In our passage in 1 Samuel, we have been seeing Israel just cry out to God for what they think the solution to their problems are. They see their solution as, the, as a new king. Someone who can defeat the Philistines, that present threat that's there. Someone who could bring order to their country as they're experiencing corruption. They want a strong ruler. But Israel is asking for far too little in chapter 10. We start to see now, in this chapter, God's response We see his answer. And as we look at what he responds with, we both see the weakness of their request, but also his graciousness. He doesn't just give them what their hearts desire, or even what they verbalize. He gives them what they need. And so let's turn to this passage. Let's ask God to bless it. Let's help him to give us an understanding of who he is. So let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We do pray that as we read it, you will help us to understand it. More than that, Lord, we, help, we pray that you'll help us to trust in it, to apply it to our lives, to see where we are in this story, and to live it out, um, live out the good news of what it speaks to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This recurring theme that happens again and again in 1 Samuel, what we've seen from the first ten chapters, is that God is calling his people to walk by faith and not by sight. Continually, we see that the things that are strong and powerful turn to nothing. And that God uses the small, the weak, and the insignificant to bring through his promises. And so we're continually driven to that reminder. And Israel should have been picking up on this clue. That that is where their hope lies. In the promises made by God. Not because those things are small in themselves, but because attached to those small things is God's word and God's promises. Well, in chapter 8, Israel wavers. Through the circumstances around them, they wind up crying out for this king. Through their anxiety, they want God to provide. And so in response to that request, we have chapter 9. This strange account where Saul and Saul's father lose some donkeys And Saul is sent on this strange, winding tour all through Israel looking for these donkeys. A story that seems like it's going nowhere. Until Saul winds up at the doorstep of the prophet Samuel. And then we understand the story. This was God's man. God's choice. It would be Saul. And chapter 10 begins with Samuel anointing Saul with oil. Now, anointing was significant in the ancient world. It, it uh, signaled that this, whoever the recipient of this oil was, was set apart for some office or for some job, some important task. In the Old Testament, Israel had used this before. We saw it, anointing of, of prophets and anointing of priests. But here now we see the very first occasion of an anointing of a king. And that will become somewhat synonymous with the term king. For you see the word anoint, the verb in this this chapter, is the same word that we get Messiah. The Hebrew for anoint. Of course the Greek then would be Christ. And the idea of Christ or a Messiah filling in for that concept of king is clear. And so it's fitting that we see in verse 1 this lofty description of what a king should be. It has almost messianic expectations. For Saul in verse 1 is told that he's going to have two roles. The king will both reign, have authority, And save. He will reign and he will deliver. 
And immediately we see that charge and we're thinking, wow, who is this Saul character that's going to be able to pull all this off? Who would be worthy of such a role? Who could have the credentials for this with such high expectations? What does Saul bring to the table? And in fact, the more we see of how significant this is, that he'll be not only just a ruler, not just a governor of this area, but meant to be God's person to deliver. We want to say, hey, Saul, let's see your resume. What do you have on your resume? Some of you have probably looked at hundreds, if not thousands, of resumes in your careers. Many of you have sent hundreds or thousands of resumes in your life. Hopefully, some successful. But when you write those, you usually craft them in such a way as to to promote all that you've done, emphasizing the things that uh, maybe fit the job description that you have highlighting the the skills, maybe embellishing a little bit, or at least focusing on the, the achievements that you've done. Saul's resume is embarrassingly weak. He's done nothing. If you look at his entire introduction in this in this section, there is nothing that would commend him to be elected or appointed king. We know that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. By the end of the book of Judges, Benjamin is almost a curse word. To be from Benjamin is embarrassing. They they should have been cast out of the people of Israel, if, if anything. In fact, you look at the story of, of chapter 9, and Saul is just sort of passive. Everybody else is doing the right things, and Saul's just kind of going along with the flow. The only reason he gets there seems to be by luck. And the only commendable thing we ever learn about Saul is that he's tall and and decent looking. I'm sorry, I don't care. Most jobs, if you just provide a headshot, it's it's not going to get you the job. Let alone deliverer and ruler of God's people. All this, all that Saul has going for him, the only thing that Saul has going for him is that he's God's choice. Saul gets anointed by Samuel without a long interview process. There's no feats of strength that Saul has to perform to say he's going to be a qualified leader. There's no vetting process. All that we have is that he is God's choice. But bring that back into the theme of 1 Samuel. Is that such a bad thing? The message again and again has been that God will take those who have the weak resume, nothing to offer in themselves. And that will be enough. That will be more than enough. In fact, it is actually harmful when we rely on our own qualifications. You know, see, Israel doesn't need a military genius. Israel doesn't need a skilled politician. God didn't just sort of scour the entire nation of Israel looking around for the right. Who has all the qualities I need so that that person can deliver my people? No, God wanted someone to prove his own glory. God chose a person. It didn't matter what they had on their skill set. 
He was always the deliverer. Israel must walk by faith, not by sight. And I have to say, when I want to apply this in real-world circumstances, that sounds crazy. I certainly don't want any boss of a company that I had, leader of a particular area, without any qualifications. But even if I, I boil this down to my own life, I don't want to walk by faith. It sounds as though that's just a spiritual platitude for someone who's naive. When faced with real problems, I don't want the advice to just trust God. I need something plausible, something practical, something I know will work, just to let go and let God. And what's the difference between that and being incompetent? What's the difference between having faith and being just plain irresponsible? I mean, sometimes I think we can confuse the two. What does it mean to walk by faith? Well, it certainly doesn't mean to walk by make-believe. It's not as though we're just to, to hope that things will work out. Faith is not the same thing as optimistic. God doesn't call us to be just optimistic about the world and irresponsible with the things around us. What's the point? The point isn't that we need to exercise some existential faith. The point is that we need to realize that our natural abilities are not enough. They're not enough. We need something beyond us. No one could fill this role. No one is worthy. It would not have been enough for Israel to get the absolute best leader. They needed something more. They needed something that could come from beyond them. Something only God could provide. So Saul being a blank canvas shows us the type of king that we need. Because it must be God. It must be God that uses this person. It must be by grace. What is grace? Grace is a gift, yes. Grace is unmerited favor, yes. But grace is God at work doing what no creature can do. God at work doing what no creature would even ask for or even imagine doing. God needs to step in because we are too limited, not just in our ability, but we, what do you even think is going to complete the task? We have too small a view of the problem and too great a view of our own resources. We need grace because we can't do it on our own. And so you see, Saul comes as a blank canvas. And Saul's just as surprised at this anointing as anybody else. You know, he is going to need more than just some strange guy pouring oil on his head for him to be convinced that he's the man. I mean, I think this is probably the reason why at the end of the chapter, or at the end of that section, he doesn't tell people that, hey, look, guys, guess who just got elected king of Israel? He keeps it silent. Well, one, he keeps it silent because Samuel didn't think it was enough to, sell, uh, to tell publicly. 
And God doesn't tell this publicly, so where would Saul get off telling it publicly? But also, who would believe him? Who would believe that this guy could actually be the king? So Samuel gives Saul some confirmation so that if anybody believes, at least Saul would believe it. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to tell you the qualities about you that make you really qualified. He's not trying to build up Saul. He's saying, no, I'm going to give you three signs, and that's how you're going to tell that you're the guy. Not three things about you, but three signs that will confirm to you the word that I'm giving to prove it. We need to learn something a little bit about assurance in this way for ourselves. For oftentimes, we look for assurance of God's grace in ourselves. Oh, am I really worthy of what God has done in my life? Oh, have I really done enough with what God's gift is? We're misunderstanding grace. Our assurance isn't going to come from looking at ourselves and our own spiritual resume. It's only got to come by looking at the gifter, the, the one who gives us this gift, the one who provides grace. If you're looking for assurance in any other way, you're always going to be left to doubt. But in this example of grace, Samuel points not to Saul himself, but Samuel points to God and his word and these signs that are given. He gives them three signs. First, he says that these donkeys that he's looking for have been found. That may sound like a random sign, but donkeys, scholars will tell you, was a, were a sign of royalty. They were a sign of kingship themselves. And so we see that kings would come in to a city, especially after a, victory, a military victory, and they would come riding in on a donkey. As we see Jesus on that Palm Sunday coming and riding in on a donkey, coming into Jerusalem, somewhat ironically, serving a different kind of victory, riding on a donkey. There's symbolism there. The second sign, we see three men carrying what could be random objects, but they're going to Bethel. And the objects they have are the materials for a sacrifice. And they give some of these items to Saul. That's telling us something about this role that Saul's going to have. Not only is it going to be a kingly role, but there's going to be a priestly aspect to this role as well. And then thirdly, Saul will be met with some prophets. And the Spirit of God is going to come on Saul, and Saul himself is going to prophesy. Now certainly these could just be three random confirmations, but I think what is actually happening here is is God showing Saul a little bit further what this role is going to be like. The role of deliverer is going to include an aspect of being a prophet, a priest, and a king. That lofty goal, these these three roles need to be filled for Israel's deliverer. The thing is, it's not just enough to have these titles. It's not just enough for Saul to call himself king or priest or prophet. He's going to have to actually live them out. There's going to have to be something that fills in that blank resume. And here we see in chapter 10 some of the qualities 
that Israel's deliverer is going to have to have. And there are two things that stand out. First, that Israel's king is going to have to be obedient to the word of God. Obedient to God's word coming through the prophet. And secondly, Israel's deliverer, Israel's king is going to need to have God's spirit. I want to go through both of these, which will frame the, the, the rest of the sermon. But, but let's look first at this idea that the king is called to obey God's word. You see, Saul needs the word of God guiding him all throughout his reign. You know, one way of looking at these three signs is to see them rather than confirming Saul, they actually work to confirm Samuel. Because Samuel is the one telling Saul that he is king, and these signs back up his claim. And it also points a little further of the role and the relationship that the two will have. Throughout this section, Samuel is telling Saul what to do. He's guiding him, he's pointing him, he's telling him his role. Verse 8, he says, go here, do that, wait for me, and then I'll tell you what to do. You see, Saul was always to submit to Samuel. Not because Samuel was special in himself, but because Samuel was God's man. In God's economy, in the people of God, it is always lex rex, not rex lex. The king is not above the law. The king can't be his own man. There is submission to the one who is anointing him. It reminds me of this, you know, in the uh, Middle Ages, the, uh, and even up even through that, emperors or kings would get anointed by or crowned, coronated by uh, popes or religious figures. And part of the symbolism and part of the tension there was always who was really the authority. If I crown you, doesn't that make me a higher authority? So we get to the point where Napoleon takes the crown himself and puts it on his own head, very clearly making a statement, I'm the one who's in charge here. Saul can never do that. He can't crown himself. He must submit. He must submit to God's word. But here's the thing that we learn throughout Saul's reign. The word of God alone is not enough. The word of God by itself isn't enough. It's not enough just to know what God wants. Saul needs something more. I know that sounds strange. Most of us want to center ourselves on the word of God and stand on that alone. But you need more than God's word in your attempts to live faithfully. They will fail if you just come to God's word on your own. Your attempts to do the right thing, to live a moral life, to be obedient to what God says, if you do it on your own, in your own power, you will fail. Why? Because we constantly turn away from God's law. Why? It's not because God's law has a problem. It's because the problem 
rests within us. The problem lies in our own heart. Everyone, all of humanity has sin. But it's not just enough to say that we we do bad things. If it was a matter of just doing sin, then actually having God's word or having God's law would be good news to us. Because we'd say, okay, I'm doing bad things, but now I know what's right, and I'll correct it, and I will do the right thing. But sin's much more insidious than that. It doesn't just stay in the, in the actions of our life. Sin isn't just doing bad things, failing to do God's law. It includes a heart that constantly produces sin. This is what theologians call original sin. Not just our actions, but a heart that constantly bends away from God. We can clean up the outside and never acknowledge that there's problems on the inside. When I was a kid, uh, if you were going to the classroom in elementary school, you'd notice that among all the desks, mine was pretty clean on the outside. I never drew on my desk. I didn't, I didn't write on and Many of the other kids did that. It looked great. Just never look inside it. You'd run away in horror. I was happy to know that I could look orderly and respectable on the outside, but man, I didn't want to mess with all that stuff on the inside. Just chuck it in there and let, let me worry about it in June or something at the end of the year. Sin is like that. We can master the outside. You know, to use a different analogy, you know, we've got a, a copier that sometimes runs with a black streak in it. You, you press every copy, it doesn't matter. You put in, in new, clean paper, streak is still there. You change all the settings, streak is still there. It doesn't matter all the changing you do to understand sin fully is not, I've done a bad thing. I've got a problem deep in my heart that I cannot solve on my own. I will constantly produce streaks in everything that I do because my heart is wicked and it turns away from God. You see, being obedient to the Word is not enough. You can keep up good appearances. You can say all the right things. You can get to a point where no one can bring an accusation against you because you're in the right. Oh, but that's such a scary place to be because you never ever deal with the stuff in the inside. That's why the gospel will always be hardest for those inclined to religion. The gospel is always going to be hardest for those who enjoy following rules who can always work the system to get the right answer. The gospel says that it doesn't matter the system you can can manipulate so that you look good in front of others, you still have a bigger problem. It's your heart. And it constantly drifts to your own desires and your own will. It is only by facing our sins that we realize we need more. We need more than what we can bring. We need more than even obedience. We need a new heart. We need a new heart. And that can only come by God's Spirit 
changing us and transforming us. This is why we actually believe in conversion here. We believe that you must be born again. That your life until that time, until the Spirit comes and works on you, it's not enough. It's not enough to mechanically memorize things. It's not enough to be able to articulate things that you can regurgitate, that you've been told. You need a new heart. And until God's Spirit comes upon us, the Word will always seem like a standard that we have to live up to, that will judge us. Until the Spirit works in our heart, we will never have joy. Not true joy. Not the kind of joy that we see here that actually produces songs. The one I hope you feel this morning when when we sing those songs that, that comes not just because the beat is good, but because we're swept up in who this God is. That we grasp the gospel to our very core, that it it just changes us, not just cognitively, but it has to move us in the entire being. God's word plus our old heart will always lack joy. God's word plus our flesh, that's what Paul calls our old heart, God's word plus our flesh will always equal condemnation. We need a new spirit. We need a new heart. We need to be transformed. And Saul will demonstrate this failure throughout his kingship. Throughout the course of his kingship, he will begin to tire of following God's man. He will tire of following Samuel. We see a little hint of this in verse um, 8, where Samuel gives some instruction to Saul to wait at Gibeah. Wait there seven days and I will come. Well, in chapter 13, Saul gets impatient at that very same command to wait at that very same place. And Saul just takes things on his own. Because he has the wicked heart that he does, because it bends away from God's Word, he will tire of following God's Word. And he will choose his own way. Because his own way will seem better, more plausible. And it will be the end of his kingship. Saul's failure to submit to God's word, it will start to point us to our inability to find anybody worthy of this role. But it will point us forward, not in despair, giving up on this hope, but to another king. Another king who will come. Another king who will even face death and go through death but rather than go his own way, says, no, not my will, but yours be done. The only king that we need, King Jesus. We need a king, not only that obeys God's word, but has God's heart. This begins to lead us to our second quality. second quality that's evident in this chapter is that the king must be empowered by the Spirit of God. That's not a new thing for the Spirit of God to come upon someone that God anoints. Um, We even see an example of this in in Numbers chapter 11. Eldad and Medad are appointed elders. Right away when they're appointed elders in in the uh, Pentateuch, the Spirit of God comes upon them, and they're able to prophesy. We see this all through the book of Acts. Whenever the Gospel comes to a new area, the Spirit of God comes out. It's not intended to be a lifelong gift Oftentimes, those are just signs to say, 
look, God is active here. He has appointed somebody. So it's no surprise that we see God's Spirit rush upon Saul at the point of his anointing. Saul, but for Saul to be the king that Israel needs must just be more than this recognition. Verse 6, we see what the Spirit's work needs to be. The Spirit will rush upon you and you will prophesy and you will be turned into another man. Saul needs to be turned into another man. He needs to be given another heart as verse 9 says that he needs to have. Saul then will be able to experience God. You see, he just needs to connect more than just cognitively. He needs to get into his being. This is what we desperately need. Not simply a good king. Not one that can be a leader, a CEO, but one that can share God's heart. Not corrupted by the sin that's in him. Now this idea of being spiritual, I think, resonates with many of us. Especially when it's in setting contrast with the first point, having God's word. Some of us say, yeah, give me God's spirit. I want to connect. I want to have an experience with the true and living God because that's the most authentic way for me to know God, to know that he exists, to know that he's part of my life. And we become wary about the religion of a book. One that can be cognitive only, read and understood. We need something that can be experienced. And this is attractive for many of us because being spiritual, we can experience God apart from the taint of religion. Apart from what other people might bring into the equation. Some of their corruption and pollution the harmful influences. Maybe you've been in a church that that has taught some really oppressive things. Maybe you've been in an environment when you've heard Christians speak and you said, well, that's that's not right. You long for this personal experience with God alone. We think often that if I'm guided by the Spirit, then we will do naturally what God wants. And that's even what it says in this passage. In verse 7, Samuel says to Saul, When these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do because God's with you. This is the life in the Spirit that we're called to live. Except, except how do you know? How do you know? How do you know you're living life in the Spirit? How do you know you're really experiencing God? How do you know that you're being spiritual and not just selfish? That that your heart's leadings are not just your own sinful heart's leadings to do something. Often we think that an individual personal spirituality will give us a greater sense of assurance. If you can just have a direct encounter with God, then that will be most authentic, unmediated by others. Yet what we find is that those who rely on an experience alone are not left with greater assurance, but more and more doubts. Experience alone will raise those questions. Did I just make that up? Am I in my own head? 
Is that real? But see, our biggest problem with being spiritual and not religious is that we have arrogantly assumed that God would accept us unmediated. We think that what we really need is this unmediated, nothing between us and God experience with him. But if we ever ask the question, maybe if I came without a mediator, I'd be in trouble. Maybe he wouldn't accept me on the goodness of my own life. Only his word, only his promises, only the mediation that he has created can actually tell us that this experience is really authentic, that it's from him. Only his word, when joined with his spirit together, is the life that he calls us to. Again, for those, just like those who only rely on his word and fall short, those who only rely on his spirit will leave themselves up to all sorts of temptations to wander from him. Saul will fail here, too. Saul will be, in his, in his years as king, he will be spiritual and not religious. When he abandons God's word, he will live by the Spirit, but it won't be the Spirit of God. It will be a demon that possesses him, that tempts him, that draws him into other things. Oh, he's spiritual, all right, but spiritual without any check to that Spirit, a Spirit that leads him far away from God's heart. In the coming years, Saul will fail to live up to this vision of the king laid out here. He will prove that we need another king. Another king. God does not leave us in despair. He doesn't leave us without hope. The fact that no human can be this, but it points us forward to a king who will do this. Who will fit this entire role. Jesus the anointed one. We see Saul being just a placeholder. This king being put out on what it should be and a reminder that every time a human tries to fill that, we will fail because we need something beyond us. And praise be to God that we don't abandon that hope because of the failing kings that Israel experienced, but always to look for one who will come. And that one has come. One who comes not from our own, but joins together humanity and divinity to be the king that we need. Another question comes from us. Where do we fit in this story? Where do we fit in this drama? We're certainly not Samuel. We're not the ones that have the role of prophet. And we're certainly not Saul. But where do we fit in this story? I think probably we fit with the faces in the crowd in verse 11. Those people who see Saul, oh, they know him. They recognize him. But they're not sure. They look at him and say, what are you doing, you son of Kish? We we know your father. We know your background. What are you doing prophesying? Now, that could be a critique against Saul. That's saying, hey, we know who this guy is. What does he have any business doing prophesying God's word. 
But most people read this as actually a criticism against the prophets. Because they even ask, who are the prophets' fathers? You see, the question is, what are you doing hanging around with these people? These are precisely the people we don't want anymore. We don't want the prophets. Don't you remember that, that prayer that we gave God? God, give us a king like the other nations. Why did we pray that? Because we're tired of the prophets. We don't want Samuel anymore. The prophets tell us what to do. The prophets lead us away from the nice, secure living that we have. They trouble us, and they don't seem to be any help against our enemies. They've had enough of God's word. They ask God for a king precisely because they don't want someone like the people that Saul is mingling with. All Samuel talked about was exactly what they didn't want. So just like the crowds, we can cry out and say, is that really God's plan? Come on, God, we need something that's going to work. Just like the people on Palm Sunday, Shouting out, Hosanna, this is finally the king that's going to come into Jerusalem and defeat our enemies. Praise be, the king's finally here. Except he comes not to destroy those enemies. But he comes to die. This points us back to that first question. We ask for God for many things. What are you asking him for? What do you want from him? So often our answer is to deal with those things out there, external to us. God, take care of the the financial problems that seem to be hounding me. God, please deliver me from these just uncomfortable people, these people that are tough to be around. God, please change this circumstance. Get me out of this this job that's going nowhere. God, deal with that out there. If that is what you're crying out to God for, then your answer is going to be disappointing. For Jesus did not come to deal with the enemies out there. He did not come to give you health and wealth. He came to deal with the enemies in here. Why? Because our real threat, the real threat in this world is not those things out there. It's the things in our heart. See, Israel longing to see its problems as the Philistines. Longing to see those things that are external to it. They will never have reason to want Jesus. The Pharisees, every time they see him, In fact, nobody in the ancient world looking at Jesus who wasn't called by him said, what in the world do you have to offer me? Because you're not going to solve my external problems. Jesus says, I didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. Christ came not to deal with your external enemies, but to deal with what's inside you, to defeat your sin, and to give you a new life. He came to be king, yes. And his kingdom begins by subduing you to reigning over you and to giving you a new heart. This is exactly Ezekiel's vision. You start reading the prophets when it seems that all hope is gone because Israel has been taken off into a foreign land 
and abused by this foreign people. What's the hope of the prophets? Give us a new heart, God. Help us to love you more. Ezekiel's vision coming out of that is from God, God's prophecy to him is God saying, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What does it look like for us? What does it look like to have this king? It means giving over to him yourself. All of you. I'll end with these words from Calvin. This is what it looks like to have Christ as your king. He says, we are not our own. Let not our reason or our will therefore sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set as our, it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. Insofar as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are God's. Let his wisdom and his will therefore rule our, all our actions. We are God's. Let all parts of our life accordingly strive toward him. This kind of life comes as a gift. And it comes with a new heart that allows us to rejoice when his word comes and join together spirit and word for his glory. Let's pray.